Hey friends, it's me, Katie Ann, and your host of the Full Confidence Ahead podcast, where we go on a journey together tackling the fears of life from family relationships to finance, from careers to community. Today, I am so excited. We have Dr. William Elder with us. He has many expertise in psychology, but specifically we're diving into the psychology of career development and the psychology in the workplace of what is the workplace and having interesting and intimate conversations in the workplace. This is something we're all facing today and it's getting increasingly more hard. So we're so excited to have him on here with his expertise with us. We will introduce him right after the break. We're so grateful for our sponsors that make this podcast possible. So listen here just for a moment for our sponsors and then we will introduce you to him. Have you ever felt scared swiping your card at a cash register, not knowing if it would be declined or maxed out on your credit limit? Believe me, I've been there holding my breath waiting to check out. Thankfully, all of that fear melted away and turned into confidence when I took a financial literacy course. The PowerPay Money Master course has changed my experience at the cash register from fearful to fearless. The online course is video-based and gives you real-life money smarts. USU Extension is offering a free Money Master course to all Full Confidence Ahead listeners. Go to Extension Courses, Dot usu dot edu slash katie ann powell and add the money master course to your cart the link will give you the 40 dollars course for free you can also get the course discount by going to extensioncourses.usu.edu and finding the money master course under the finance category use the code katie ann k-a-t-i-e-a-n-n with no spaces at checkout to claim your 40 dollars discount and free course Okay, friends, we are back. Dr. William Elder, thank you so much for being on with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm so excited to share your expertise with our with our podcast listeners. So I'm going to read your bio, and I think they'll be like, wow, bang, this is awesome. We're like so excited to have this conversation. So you received your PhD in counseling and psychology from the University of Utah, correct? That was, that was your, your starting point. That's right, yep. And then you served in multiple roles at South Texas VA Hospital in San Antonio, including military sexual trauma coordinator and director of PTSD clinical team and evidence-based treatment coordinator. Now, those are like huge roles. Those, And we're so grateful that you did that service and that work. Just thank you and congratulations. That's absolutely incredible. So you've received awards in the divisions of American Psych Psychological Association, that's APA, for those who don't know, for the Practitioner of the Year, big deal, and Distinguished Professional Contribution, also a big deal. So huge accomplishments. So Will is one of, on the editorial board of the APA Journal and the Psychology of Men and Masculinities and is a professor at the University of Texas Medical School. You've published research about the psychology of men, women, and career development and the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I love this. After work, you enjoy exploring small towns of Texas, fitness, and mindful practice. I love that. Your amazing accomplishments of them that you also love to explore small towns. It, it's a perfect combination. Um, I want to just start off the question, but why why did you why were you even interested in psychology in the workplace in the first place? When I was a graduate student, I got a research assistantship um, in the Department of Surgery at the University of Utah Med School um, with a professor 
who wanted to study women's career development. Um, at the time, fewer than 10% of women in academic surgery were uh, professors. And um, that, you know, for the for the 21st century is a very odd situation. And so we studied how women find mentors and what are the key features of a mentor that make them um, the most effective. We looked at uh, disruptive behavior in the workplace. So um, difficulties with mentors in the workplace and, and, and behavior that can be aggressive and and sometimes even violent um, that can dissuade uh, medical students, interns, and residents from pursuing careers in surgery, um, and then learning how to be competitive to vie for resources, uh, for tenure, for um, opportunities to do research and to get ahead in, in your career. So kind of understanding all of these barriers along the pipeline from medical school to professorship um, helped acquaint me with all kinds of uh, difficulties that that women in particular face as they make their way toward the goals that they've set and and understanding how those problems get resolved mm, that's huge and the question here and this might seem i like an obvious question, but to me, it's really interesting. So is men and women career development different? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, from, from, um, you know, the, the timeline of career development really is focused on uh, men biologically, you know, you have all this energy in your 20s to do um, kind of paying your dues and going to school. And then you get your first um, professional job, you know, in your late 20s, early 30s. And um, you need to become incredibly productive at work and, and publish and do clinical work and teach. And for many women, there's a consideration of the desire to have a family, um, an expectation that you will do a lot of hands-on care for family members. There's more conflict between work and home. Um, men, you know, are sort of expected to go into jobs and have um, some work-family conflict, but um, not the same degree that women face. Um, women also have a hard time sometimes finding mentors who take them seriously. Um, and there's some research that indicates many mentors take on people who are like themselves and who they see as being productive for their own career. A great mentor takes mentees who are different from themselves and teach them not only clinical and research and didactic skills, but also how to be competitive and how to um, kind of navigate political situations that could be complex and um, demonstrate that they're not interested in that mentee making them productive, but have this sort of attitude of selflessness. So 
you know, I think I think that um, women do have a lot of expectations placed on them developmentally that can impact their professional careers and identities. Interesting question on that too. Like as a woman, how do I seek out the best mentors then? I love that the distinction between a mentor who's using their mentee kind of to boost their career and one who's truly mentoring. Um, so how, how do I make sure I'm finding the right mentors? Um, I think that some of the most important considerations are to find a mentor who regularly has this track record of taking people who are different from them and different in a variety of ways, both men and women and people of color and dominant identities um, and understanding, uh, you know, I, I think a really key piece of, uh, you know, a finding that I discovered was the importance of multiple mentors, you know, that um, we have kind of an intricate and complex system of multiple members of our kind of team rather than just one person uh, because we need guidance across a lifespan. Um, you know, we should find people with particular areas of expertise who can provide us direction, for example, um, at our phase of career development, the next phase, long-term issues, um, or specific clinical or scholarly needs. I, I guess the idea of finding uh, one size fits all advisor is is unrealistic um and i think you know to find an unselfish person and not waiting for that person to be assigned to you um one thing that's interested interesting about medicine is that there typically aren't formal mentors assigned um like in the social sciences or the arts um, people form mentorships that are unofficial and and um, typically are initiated by the student who approaches the mentor and asks if they can spend time um, in their lab or meeting with them regularly for professional development. So, you know, don't hesitate to reach out to someone and ask if you can have regular coffee appointments. They're likely to say yes. I love that. I also love that you said that they're likely to say yes and to be the one to initiate. Um, I I also know that as you're reaching out, like that's going to have to be sometimes more intimate conversations in the workplace. You're asking for their time. And I know you've done a lot of research about facilitating these intimate conversations in the workplace, whether that be from asking for a mentor, really asking about what's what it's like in the job role um, to more difficult conversations how do we start to facilitate these difficult conversations or or whether we seem vulnerable asking for a mentor or whether they're more difficult um, on sensitive topics? This is such a fantastic question. This is a question that's about how to create closeness, how to create safety. Um, you know, first, I want to say a couple of things, you know, in listening to your podcast and um, even in our experience together, um, we 
are most effective if we're willing to share a little bit about ourselves. Hmm. And that can be tricky because it's a professional setting and uh, you you want to walk this line between going too far into wishing you wouldn't have disclosed those details and then too little this sense that other people don't know anything about you at all um, you know in preparing for this discussion i i wanted to decide how much i was going to talk to you about my own experiences that's tricky right um and and vulnerability in that way doesn't mean that anything personal goes the story has to get us somewhere that we couldn't otherwise get to um but inviting some vulnerability into your disclosure into a conversation um really does equal out power differentials. When someone discloses, um, the person gives away a little bit of their power and invests it into the relationship. It humanizes us, it establishes authenticity, it validates that we don't always have the same experiences in life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've had supervisors um, tell me that disclosing my own sexual orientation would be harmful to my patients because same-sex attraction is immoral and was unrepresentative of the agency. Mm -hmm. I've also had, uh, you know, I, I was dismissed once from a training experience because I asked too many questions, mm -hmm. but I've also had some really fantastic experiences with advisors who taught me how to um, deliver an apology when I didn't believe that I was at fault, um, who took my side when other supervisors were critical um, and I've had workplaces value my identities when others didn't. Um, so as you're thinking about having conversations at work, um, considering what elements of your own identity you're most comfortable bringing up, which ones you're most nervous about, um, thinking about your own history with disclosure at work, how your supervisors reacted, how their responses impacted the work you did to, at that agency. How did it affect your professional identity development? Um, so anyway, I, I want to underline that if we're really committed to changing work relationships, um, we'll likely need to have conversations with a, a dash of disclosure. Otherwise, we may, you know, unwittingly perpetuate assuming that everyone is having the same experience or blaming other people who have different experiences. And um, so you can share experiences working in situations where you were of a non-dominant identity um, in a culture that discouraged you to talk about your background or where employees never talked about their backgrounds and were essentially ignored for having diverse experiences. But um, you can also share interactions where disclosure was encouraged and mm -hmm. and you were valued and 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 seen as having strengths because of your unique experiences. Um, mm. I think it's also important to ask questions and be comfortable initiating those questions. In fact, I I think that just initiating can be a success in and of itself. I think that sort of a junior varsity or an easy first step is to ask a set of questions about um, the clients that you serve, the customers that you're working with. Um, 
what are ways we can serve those customers that are culturally appropriate? Um, trying to avoid using the word why is a good idea. Why can make people mm. feel defensive. Instead, shoot for questions to start with how and what. Mm. Uh, for example, questions like what are the values of our customers? How does our own culture affect the way we communicate with mm. others? How can we communicate with a consumer in a way that accommodates their cultural background? What methods can we use to deliver services most comfortably to those we serve? I think the varsity level set of questions, the harder and more advanced ones are directed at inviting fellow employees to share more about their own experiences. This is challenging, but for sure can result in meaningful connection and, and conversations. Questions like, what are some changes we could make in our workplace to make people feel more comfortable being themselves? Or how do you feel employees gain access to certain job opportunities or workplace resources? What are the qualities of supervisors you get along with best? Those are so impactful. I love that you gave like the JV and the varsity version too. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, no, that's scary. But then you're, I'm like, oh, I can start with questions. Oh, like I can, I can start with those, those few questions of how can I make this and, or celebrate the cultures of my customers? I, I can start there. And then I can also see how that talking about those and creating a space that that's frequently discussed helps me graduate to, okay, now I feel comfortable to now ask, hey, how can I make this a place where all of our, our diversities, our, our cultures are celebrated um, just by like, kind of like a muscle of, oh, we've asked these questions. Let's just now shift it to us a little bit more. Um, how do you, because I can also imagine that sometimes when you ask this question in the workplace, someone might boil up with emotion of like, oh, like it's real diversity and cultures get suppressed in the workplace. And that can have a lot of, of stress, trauma, all that. So how do you keep that from bubbling up? But also how do you express that appropriately? Because it needs to be shared, but also not like yelled at, you, you know what I mean? Like, where's the fine line? How do we share the information without oversharing our emotions? It's a good question. You know, I, I often um, supervise psychiatry residents in their first year of psychotherapy training. And I was uh, once uh, preparing um, a resident to see a patient and I handed her um, a handout about the concept of intersectionality which is um, this idea that we have many identities that occur at the same time. And those identities include, for example, our age, sexual orientation, identity, race, ethnicity. Um, and these identities overlap. We don't have moments where we're just men or women at one point in the day. Uh, then we have moments where, where we're just our religious identity. Um, and we're, we're all of these at the same time. And we were talking about how this, this concept of intersectionality impacts therapy and, and trauma experiences and our interactions with the therapist. And, and I asked her if she would please use this handout at the beginning of her session. And she became very tearful mm -hmm. and said, this is so overwhelming. I cannot imagine 
having this conversation, I feel like I'm going to have to accept responsibility for the racism that this person has experienced throughout her life. Mm. Um, I want to assert that you are not taking on the responsibility of every bad thing that someone has experienced. It just means listening to people's experiences and, and believing them. You know, if you're a white, straight, well-educated Christian person, that is someone whose identities are usually associated with power in, in the United States, you can still do a great job having these conversations. There's been research about whether people at work are more likely to enjoy their relationships with colleagues and supervisors more if they're of the same background. Um, but matching sex, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation identities, none of this has been found to predict satisfaction um, with your supervisor or colleagues. Satisfaction is based on the ability of your peers and supervisors to initiate and process cultural identities in terms of workplace relationships. So listening really is the most powerful thing you can do to help someone. We can't always solve problems and we aren't obligated to make other people happy, but we can show true empathy and encouragement, tell the person their responses are understandable, that the person matters to you, that you'd like to help the person find support. Um, keep what's shared confidential to protect their trust and ensure that your help is effective. Um, asking for help really is an amazing way of forming connection with, with someone. Um, I also want to highlight an idea that's a great first step, mm. which is um, the idea of cultural humility. In the past 10 years, there's been a shift from being what we used to refer to as culturally competent toward being culturally humble. Um, Competence seems to reflect this idea that we achieve something, that we have gotten to a certain place where we will no longer have to learn or develop. But being culturally humble means a lifelong attitude of openness and interest in learning more about other people's identities and experience. Um, it involves creating cultural opportunities, moments when you explore people's experiences and engaging in these discussions. And it's been found to be associated with positive workplace culture. Supervisees don't tell supervisors um, much about their personal lives for how their personal lives are impacting their professional lives if they don't perceive their supervisor as culturally humble. Um, and it creates a lot of safety. A fascinating thing about couples therapy, almost every single type of couples therapy starts with establishing safety mm. and knowing how to handle conflict. Why? Because once people feel safe, they start to talk mm. and it allows for authenticity and vulnerability. Um, and once people have trusting work relationships, they withhold less and talk more and they start to share relevant and critical information that can inform how we change our workplaces to promote staff growth and welfare. I have never heard of that cultural humility and I'm so grateful you shared that. That to me is beautiful. Um, as we have so many diverse cultures that are beautiful, 
that helps me realize that there's a space for all of them, that one doesn't need, mine doesn't need to impose over someone else's for us to get along with that cultural humility um, creates that safe space. And I love that you, I just, I love that you've given us first steps. That has given me so much hope because I'm like, wow, Will, this, that sounds like a perfect world here. And like, I want that, but, but you've given me some tangible things to go back today at my job and start a conversation with house instead of wise with house and just to sit and listen. I'm like, oh, I can start there. Like I, I can create this world. And I hope our podcast listeners are, are hearing that too, that we've, we've talked about a couple elements and whether that's mentorship and finding the right mentor, whether that's starting these more intimate conversations in the workplace, whether that's finding the cultural humility, I have loved, like you have given me three very tangible first steps for each of those. And I have loved hearing from you as we wrap up. I just want to know what is one piece of advice you'd give your younger self to boost your confidence? Um, you'll always look good in navy blue. <laughs> uh, uh, I love that. Uh, I I think you know this is such a great question. Um, I look forward to hearing this question from your your interviewees when I listen. Um, I think that I wish I would have known when I was uh, earlier in my career development, and even you know as a teenager that people who achieve great things don't usually have fewer obstacles. They just get up after falling down more often than other people do. Um, falling down really is irrelevant. Um, getting up after falling down is going to be the key to your success. I've never heard that advice before, especially on our podcast, and I love it. Also, pulling it back to our conversation, that gives me hope because I'm I'm a little nervous to start these more vulnerable conversations, but you've just given me hope. I want a greater workplace, right? I, I want a greater conversations, greater psychological safety. Um, and you said, if I just get back up and try again, like that's, that's success. So we are so grateful, truly humbled that you would come on and share your expertise with us. You are a wealth of knowledge. You have given us incredible first steps and a vision of what we can have in our workplaces and in our lives in the future and those baby steps that we can do today. And we're just thrilled. Is is there a place if our podcast listeners want to reach out to you in the future or read your articles? How's the best? What's the best way that they can find you, read your articles? How can they get in touch with you? Sure. Um, my website is www.sugarvalleytherapy.com. Um, it's a link to other podcasts that I've done and, and, and articles I've written, um, more about uh, workshops that I provide and, and, of course, individual therapy. Thanks so much for having me. It's been wonderful to feel your energy, your sense of hope and your optimism, um, your genuine excitement about creating a, a different world in which people feel supported and, and safe and where change is possible. I really Thank appreciate you. it. 
It has truly been an honor to be on. And for our podcast listeners too, that link, the sugarvalleytherapy.com, it'll be in our show notes. So if you don't remember it, don't worry, just pop down into the show notes. The link will be there so you can click on it and discover more and hear more because that was just a wealth of knowledge. And I want to hear more, learn more, and I'm sure, and I know our podcast listeners do too. So thank you, truly, thank you so much for being on with us. We are absolutely elated that you were with us. After every episode, I'm amazed at what each of our guests have accomplished in their lives. They inspire me to go for my dreams and seize opportunities. The reality of life is that every opportunity and dream has a financial implication, and knowing how to manage and grow your money will not only help you achieve your goals, but also get to them faster. Utah Money Moms has been a resource for me to learn how to better manage my money and turn my dreams into reality. Their website is full of interactive material to engage all learning styles. My favorite resource is their free monthly webinars where I can listen and have my questions answered by financial counselors and educators. Head on over to utahmoneymoms.com or utahmoneymoms on Instagram to access free empowering material. Again, that is utahmoneymoms.com or utahmoneymoms on Instagram. Thanks for listening in on the Full Confidence Ahead podcast. Weekly on Tuesdays, we'll continue our journey of confidence together through new interviews and insights. Make sure to hit the subscribe button to stay up to date on the latest conversations and confidence boosts. And by the way, you got this because you deserve to live life full confidence ahead. See you next week.